Hey, good, good morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. It's good to see everyone. So great to see everyone fellowshipping. <laughs> now this is great. I love this. This is one of the this is one of the things that Alan and I missed greatly last summer when we were. Completely online, it's just seeing the church family gather together and catch up, and 
uh, and fellowship together. So, Pastor, we're starting. <laughs> All right. Welcome to Haven Reach this morning. It's good to see everyone. Uh, good to gather together and worship the Lord. A couple announcements as we uh, as we get started. Um, f- following the service, immediately following the service, we're going to give just a brief financial report. Um, we've got a sheet that just kind of breaks some things down. We're going to hand that out to all the folks in the church. Uh, we'll take a brief break, just a five-minute stand-up, you know, stretch where you are, don't run off. Um, you know, and then we'll do that report. It'll, it'll take probably 10 minutes. I'm going to officiate it. I'm just going to go through, cover that. If there's any questions, you know, just want to keep everybody, you know, in the loop on where we are, especially since we've re-signed the, you know, new lease agreement, those types of things. Um, so at that time, guests, you're, you're, y'all are welcome to, to leave if you, uh, if you, you know, if you want to, if you want to hang around, you know, certainly welcome to do that. Like I said, we'll take a brief, just five minute stretcher break, and then we'll, you know, cover those, uh, uh, those budgetary items, but that'll be at the close of the service today. Um, yeah, the Easter fellowship due to the rain that's supposed to move in this afternoon, we've moved that to the 11th, right? That's two weeks. Yes. I'm trying to find somebody who knows. Yes. Two weeks, Travis. Thank you. That's going to be at the Groves house. So Easter fellowship, Easter egg hunt, um, that will be in two weeks. Um, so just to re kind of mark your calendars for that. Uh, so we're going to shift that. Hopefully we'll have, have good weather then. Um, also, some folks have, have mentioned about the growing number of, of young children, babies down in the nursery, um, which is great. That's a fantastic problem to have, you know, for sure. But obviously, we have limited space and limited kind of number of caregivers. So just to let everyone know, you know, we're aware of that. The children's team is aware of that. And we're trying to work through some solutions, um, you know, in order to care for, for our growing uh, children's population, uh, which, again, is, is a blessing for sure. So just want you to know, you know, we're, we're aware of that and uh, and we're, we're working through um, options and, uh, and ideas for, uh, you know, what we can do there. Uh, let's see. Evangelism training, that is going to be April 25th through June 13th from 6 to 7 p.m. here at the church. Uh, so mark your calendars for that. Uh, that'll be just a great, very practical, helpful um, training and uh, giving, putting information and tools in your hands for just regular day-to-day evangelism uh, what that looks like in the rhythm of uh, of your life. Uh, Alan's going to be facilitating that. He's been putting together some real good resources, real good material. Uh, so, again, that's going to start April 25th. Um, I think that that's it. Alan, is there anything else? Oh, I was like, where did you go? You took your jacket off. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, just a reminder, our COVID policies, we do not require a mask, um, but we do ask that you consider the health of others as you move about. Uh, you know, if you're sitting in a space you don't feel comfortable, certainly spread out. I mean, move chairs wherever, uh, you know, for sure. We want to make sure that everyone is, uh, you know, is, is respective of the, the health and the needs of others, you know, as well. Um, if you or your children use the restroom, uh, please make use of any of the, uh, the cleaning items that are in there, uh, you know, to, to wipe down surfaces that you or they touch. All right. All right. Well, our call to worship this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians 3, verse 18. Oh, excuse me, 19, verse 19. This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, one of several prayers he gives in the book of Ephesians. And in here he says, And to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. Let's pray. Father God, we come after busy weeks and a weekend. 
Many of us already thinking about the task and the things ahead. Father, may we not glide through worship today. Father, may it be the pinnacle and mark of the week ahead to set our hearts towards you. To remember the grace and the mercy that you have shed on us in this past week. And to be fueled for the mission of exalting your name in our lives in the days ahead. Father, may we think on the infinite love that you have shown us in Christ. A love that surpasses knowledge. Father, if all the ink were poured out on the parchment papers, the words would still just be a drop in the bucket of being able to express how deep your love is for us. Father, may it have a great impact on us today as we worship you. Would you be pleased to be in our presence, Father, today? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, please.
everybody this morning. Go ahead and have a seat. Kids, if you want to come up and join Austin for our time with children. All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? (laughs) 
How's everybody doing this morning? Good, good. It's good to see y'all. We're still working in our book, through our book, Big Truths for Young Hearts, right? Big, big ideas about who God is and who we are being made in his image, okay? And that image being broken by sin and why Jesus came to restore that image. We've been talking a lot about that through, gosh, almost over a year now, okay? And we've talked about God and how many, remind me, how many persons are in God? Five, right? Wait, three, three, okay, three. Name them for me. God the, God the Father. God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? So we've talked about God the Father, we've talked about God the Son, now we're going to talk about God the Holy Spirit, okay? So we're going to spend the next couple weeks talking about God the Holy Spirit. So this morning, I want to talk about God the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit showed himself in the Old Testament, okay? The works of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, okay? Because you've got the Old Testament, the book, the section of the Bible that's about God's works and what God is doing before Jesus came. Okay, then you have the New Testament with Jesus coming to earth, right? Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus, his life and ministry, his death, burial, and resurrection. And then the new church being launched from Acts all the way through to the book of Revelation in the end times. Okay, so I want to talk about in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, what did the Holy Spirit do? Okay, what did the Holy Spirit do? There's about a hundred mentions of the, of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Okay, about 60 of those. And I know you guys just picture numbers greatly. Okay, so this is going to just land on you real easy. Um, but about 60 of those is in reference to the Holy Spirit actually doing something. Not promises of what the Holy Spirit would do in greater detail later, but what the Holy Spirit was actually doing right then. Okay, and the Holy Spirit, what you see in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would fill people would fill people, or would overcome them for a specific task or a specific calling. Okay, and that would be usually for just the duration of that time. Okay, how many, let me see if I can paint a word picture for you. How many of you guys have ever been to the beach? Who's been to the beach? The beach. Okay, what do you like to build at the beach? Sandcastles, right? You ever been to the beach and sometimes you're you're working in the sand and it's really dry and it won't it won't make you know the shapes that you want. What do you do? The water, brilliant water. You go to the you go you go to the you go to the ocean, right? Because that's a lot of water right there. And do you get do you get it in your hands? What do you put the water in? A bucket. That's right. You put you okay. So you fill the bucket with water and then you take it back to your sand pile. Right, and you'll put the sand in the sand pile, right, to make it so that it's nice and it'll pack down real good, right? Okay, so you think of the Holy Spirit overcoming and filling people in the Old Testament, kind of like that bucket, okay? Just like you would fill the bucket with water in order to accomplish a task, right? You want to build a sandcastle. So the Holy Spirit would indwell people in the Old Testament, okay, for the specific purpose of carrying out God's plan and what God was building, okay? Now, God wasn't building a sandcastle. He was fashioning a people for himself. Okay? All right, so that kind of maybe will help give you an idea. Okay, so let me give you a couple instances where, where the Holy Spirit would fill people. In the Old Testament, back when, when at the, uh, in the Exodus, right, the Jews were, were, they came out of Egypt, and they were marching through the wilderness, and God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and all the Old Testament laws, and then he showed Mo Moses the pattern for the temple or the, not the temple, the, the tabernacle, okay? The tent and the place where God would meet with him. He says, I want you to build this, okay? Well, God, the, the Holy Spirit, right? God's three persons. The Holy Spirit indwelt a specific man named Bezer, uh, 
Bezael and Oholiab. I like that name specifically. These two men, Scripture says that the Holy Spirit filled them for the task of the of the craftsmanship of craftsmanship. So He gave them specific skills and a heart's desire to make all of the things for the tabernacle, to cut all the precious stones, to weave and to fashion all of the the draperies and and the curtains, all of those things, to make all the poles, all the things that were fashioned out of wood. He empowered them to do this and also gave them the gift of teaching to teach others how to do it, okay? So he filled them for the specific task of, of being able to build that tabernacle where God would meet with Moses with the priests, okay? So he did that. All right, he also filled Moses as well because Moses was a leader of the Jews. He filled Moses, and Moses did this for a long time as he led the, he led the church, uh, he, led the, uh, he led the Israelites being filled with the Spirit. But there was one point in the Old Testament where Moses takes 70 leaders and the Holy Spirit fills them to help Moses lead. You know, and there were two men who weren't present when that when that filling took place. And God gave them as a sign to show that the Holy Spirit had filled them that they would prophesy. They would tell of the grandeur and the glory of God, both things present and things to come and things in the past. There were two men who weren't present. You know, I don't know if they slept in or what, but they weren't there when that happened. But you know what? When they were in their tents and they were in their camp, they were still filled with the Holy Spirit and they still prophesied. And Joshua... Remember Joshua, he's the military commander that follows Moses. Joshua, he comes to Moses and he goes, I don't know about the like of this. People are going to start following these two men because they weren't present. And Moses says, no, 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 no. Oh, that all the people would be filled with the Holy Spirit and would prophesy and would tell of the grandeur and glory of God. Do you know that's a, that's a pointing forward to the greater work that the Holy Spirit would do after Jesus would come and would fill people? But I'm getting ahead of myself, right? We're not, we're not there yet. All right, one more. Okay, let me give you one more. Okay, remember Saul? Who knows who Saul was in the Old Testament? Who knows David? King David? King David and David and Goliath, right? Well, before when David was a boy, when he was young, do you know who the king was? That was King Saul. King Saul, he was the first king uh, in Israel. But he wasn't God's chosen king. He was the people's king. The people chose Saul, but God still filled Saul with the Holy Spirit for the purpose of leadership, for the purpose of leading the people. But do you know what Saul did? He sinned against God. Now, he offered strange sacrifices to God that were not given by Samuel, who was the priest at the time. He didn't wait on Samuel when he was supposed to. He disobeyed God when God gave him clear instructions about things he was supposed to do. And so God took the Holy Spirit from him and put it upon David and anointed David, said, this is my king. Okay, so you see in the Old Testament, just like that pail, remember you're building a sandcastle, okay? You're going to fill that pail with water. Now, do you fill the pail with water and you take it home with you with the water? No, no, the waters, you do that for a specific purpose of building the sandcastle. And this is what we see, the Holy Spirit would fill people you only see it occasionally. It doesn't happen all the time. He would fill some people for the purpose of building a people for God's for God, for God's self. Okay, 
All right. Is that, is that helpful? I know that's a lot. These are big ideas. These are big ideas, but I hope maybe that word picture and some of the stories we've looked at is helpful for you to understand how does the Holy Spirit work? How did he work in the Old Testament? And then as we move forward, we'll talk more about the bigger things that the Holy Spirit does as we get into the New Testament and today. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. I love seeing you all this morning. Let me pray for us. You guys can go sit down. Father God, we thank you. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, seeing him work in the Old Testament to empower people for the gift of leadership, Father, for the gift of of even craftsmanship, of building things that they're passionate about for your glory, Lord. And Father, we see in there just samples of the greater work that the Holy Spirit would do when Jesus would be resurrected. And he would say, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So, Father, I pray for these young minds this morning, that your spirit would indwell them, that they would come to faith in you. They would see their need for Jesus. They would repent of sins. They would love Christ, Father. Call him their Lord. And that, Father, your spirit would indwell them, that they might shine as lights and beacons of Christ in a darkened world. Father, may we all, old and young alike, Rest under your hand of grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys can go sit down. So before we move into the next song, just uh, want to, for those of you that haven't seen him, I want to introduce you to my friend Kevin Moore back here playing the banjo. We asked him a few months ago if he would come on this Sunday, and uh, or come on some Sunday. We hadn't dis- decided which one, but that he would come and and uh, and provide some some banjo expertise behind some of the some of the songs. So uh, so he's here uh, to put to give you some context. Kevin's also a man that can make me dig holes at work. Uh, so there's two of them in this room now. So uh, be nice to him. Maybe he'll be nice to me. But uh, he, had, he and his family, his wife Sarah and his kids are here, some up here, some down there. Uh, but Kevin uh, has become a, a good friend to me over the years, uh, a constant man, a man who loves and fears the Lord, loves his wife well, loves his family well. And so it is our privilege, truly, to have Kevin to play with us. Thank you for being with us uh, today. Evan has not made any apologies about going after him to be a part of Haven Ridge. So I didn't do it this time. It's, uh, it's Evan. So, but Evan's a salesman and he sells. So, uh, there you go. So anyway, uh, thanks again, Kevin. Let's stand and we'll sing a few more songs together. I will hold fast to the 
swap instruments for just a second.
You may be seated. I come to this time in our service. Let's pray for our, our missionaries overseas as well as our local missions efforts. Father God, Lord, you are the ancient of days, the one who has no beginning and no end. And yet, Father, you, spo- you chose to speak into existence a world where time would start and time would end. And between those two benchmarks, Father, you would create all manner of life, all manner of things to exalt and glorify your name. And the crown of that would be people made in your image to bear the responsibility of exalting and displaying so many of your shared characteristics and to rule and to care for your creation. And sin entered the world and broke that. And we are to bear the weight of that responsibility. And yet praise be to you that that did not surprise you was all part of your plan that you might display your mercy and your grace and your justice on the cross that Jesus was hung on. That we might know you through his shed blood. And this is the message that we proclaim to the universe. In the daily rhythms of our life, Father, we exalt you. We project Christ to the world around us. So, Father, would we consider that charge, that responsibility, to carry that mantle with humility and with courage. Father, as we go throughout our life, as we have conversations with people, wherever you may have us, would we be faithful to bring the gospel into those conversations, to care enough for those people around us, whether they're strangers, old friends, new friends, or family members. We care enough for their souls to speak hard truths with love and with mercy and with grace, that they might know you through Jesus. And Father, would would you empower your missionaries, who have have said like Paul when Paul wrote to the Romans and said, I must go where Christ has not been named. He was on his way to Spain. I can't be content to proclaim the gospel just here. I've got to go where Christ has not been named. And so many of those within the church, Father, have felt that same call and have left all manner of comforts of home to proclaim your grace and your mercy where it has not yet been named. And so, Father, we lift up our missionaries in Bangladesh, in in Ireland, Father, in China, South Africa, Father, even other, other parts of the world. I know there are families in this room, Father, who support missionaries themselves, their own families support them. 
And so, Father, for all these missionaries, would you give them clarity in the gospel that there would be a daily renewing of their mind and the scriptures. Your spirit would continue to kindle a fire of an affection for Christ and a desire to see him exalted among the nations. Father, no matter what the enemy might throw at them, Father, would that flame continue to burn. And that, Father, you would empower them for the work that you have in store. And that they might have the blessing of seeing fruit from their labors. Or perhaps even fruit from the labors of those who've gone before them. That in all things you would be exalted amongst the nations, Father. So now, Lord, as we come to this point in our service where Alan's coming to preach, Father, would you open your word? Would you give him clarity, conviction, passion, Father, that you might rightly apply through him your word to our lives? We might be made more and more like Jesus. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you, if you will, open your copy of the scriptures to First Peter. First Peter, chapter two. For a fuller context, I'm going to start by reading from verse 13. I'll read from verse 13 and go all the way down through 25, so you'll kind of know what all is happening here. Last week, we looked at 13 through 17. Um, This week, we'll start with 18 and go to 24. And that may, unless Austin does something different, or, or unless Austin continues, that may be our the end of what we're going to time we're going to spend in first peter uh, for those of you that are joining with us for the first time today we finished the book of john um, a few weeks back after two years and a week of being in the gospel of john that's typically how we do things we walk through full books of the bible with an occasional break in between to uh, to tackle some relevant issues and uh, at the end of those times we have the opportunity to just tackle some issues or, or go through some text and mine out some principles and some truths from those texts as God has been ministering to us. Um, what I did not count on was how much I would be drawn into this text and how difficult I would find it to be. So that is an unofficial disclaimer. In a moment, I'll give you my official disclaimer. So we'll get to that in just a second. But let's read the text together. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, Peter says whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up or a cloak for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, You have been healed. So here's my objective for today, having heard the context from which we'll be walking or or mining out these principles. So my objective today is to explore and better understand some of the nuances that exist within ethical Christian conduct. I want to explore and better understand some of these nuances that exist within ethical Christian conduct. Because this whole thing here, we get into an issue of Christian ethics, Right out of the gate, what are we seeing? Servants, be subject to your masters. So further context is, he is writing to believers. He's writing to believers who are suffering persecution, albeit sporadic, who are suffering oppression. He's writing to these people and he's saying, listen, there is a code of conduct that is to be named among you if you're going to claim to be in Christ. Now, a lot of people approach a text like this. Unfortunately, they approach a text like this, and they deal with it in isolation. And for them, it's a recipe for Christian passivism. Now, I would not say that this is a text for Christian passivism. I would not say that this is a text that allows you, that cuts your tether and lets you say, you know what, see, no matter whatever happens to you, you have to shut your mouth. No matter whatever happens to you, you just have to take it. Now, there is something to be said about suffering and enduring that suffering. There's something to be said about whenever you are subject to someone's unjust treatment, that you respond in a way that rightly represents Jesus. Because Peter ends by giving the example in Christ. I mean, he kind of puts that bookend at that section saying, listen, follow Jesus. You can't go wrong there. You can't go wrong with Christ, but I understand that this text opens up avenues for conversation. It uh, it opens up avenues for debate. So here's my disclaimer. As a student of the Bible, I'm always a student of the Bible, as should you be, I am presenting this. Notice I said I'm not a professor of the Bible, okay? I'm a student of the Bible. Having a terminal degree such as doctorate just means I've been a student for longer than some other people. That's it, right? So, or, or had in more intense study than other people. But I'm a student of the Bible. I'm a student of the Word. And, and what's so fantastic about the Word of God, at 41 years old, I know I look 23, but at 41 years old, when I approach the text, God is always revealing these new things. And it's, and it's, and it's a wonderful thing to experience, but it's also a humbling thing to experience. Because I've learned all these things along the years. Sometimes I apply them well, sometimes I do not. Sometimes they're misappropriated, sometimes they're not. But God is always taking me to these places, around these new corners, around these new alleyways where I'm discovering new things. I'm thinking, man, that's fantastic. Why couldn't I have known that 20 years ago? Why didn't I know that a year ago I've got to go and erase that whole sermon? Because, my goodness, I didn't even see that. And maybe that was a, a, a lack of effort on my part. Maybe it was intellectual laziness. Maybe it was just that the Spirit of God didn't show me these things. I don't know. But this is all a journey where we're students of the Bible, and I'm presenting this as a report on my progress, you're my classroom, as a report on my current progress with regards to a Christian's response to injustice. I'm fully aware of the nuances and interpretations that come with this topic. I'm fully aware of how people arrive at 1 Peter, and they 
walk away with a different interpretation. I understand that. So here's my aim, in addition to my objective, is to present to you the pendulum shift that goes to Christian activism and where that's wrong, to show you the pendulum shift that leads to Christian vigilantism, and that's wrong, and why it's necessary that we work to harmonize how the Christian should respond to injustice in times where we are called to receive it and suffer well, and at times where we stand. There's a time to fight, and there's a time to flee. And so we're going to explore some of these things, just start scraping the tip of those things. So I'm going to move through this as quickly as I can, understanding that we have a meeting that comes up after this. I'm sure Austin would be fine if for some reason I don't get through with this that I can pick up next week or the week after Austin is done. So here's the outline. I want to, I want to talk through a Christian's response to injustice, a Christian's blessing in the midst of suffering, and a Christian's example that's found in Christ. That's basically how Peter outlines his, uh, this, this pericoped section, the section where it, it encapsulates what he's trying to get across uh, in terms of subjection and how we are to conduct ourselves. So let's start with a Christian's response to injustice. Peter says, servants, be subject to your masters. And he gives a degree with all respect. And that word is translated as fear. Now what's interesting is this word is not... You know, the reason the translators use the English respect is because it's not this abject terror or horror in the face of something. Um, but respect, respect is the closest English word we have to understanding what this Greek word actually means. Okay, so respect is as close as you can get. It does have this idea of fear, but it's a healthy apprehension towards uh, towards, uh, you know, towards oppression, apprehension towards uh, what we might be subjected to or what might happen to us in the midst of these things. So he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respects. I do think it's important to identify this word servant, okay? Because our minds may want to go to, uh, you know, uh, earlier American history. Our minds may want to go to a time where, uh, where slaves were treated tremendously unjustly, you know, and if you're not careful and if you're thinking that that's, that that's what it's saying, then you might have a misappropriation of how to respond in this text, and it gets offensive really fast, but to be very, very textual, this word here is not doulos, which is a bond slave or a bond servant of Christ. That's not the word that is used. The word is oikates, which means, and for those of you visiting with us, I'm not up here always doing Greek stuff. This is just important today, okay? I'm not that guy. Uh, it's a servant or slave that worked within the house. These servants were often very educated. This was a good position, okay? I mean, I, I'd probably dig more holes than they did, I promise you. So this was a, this was a good position for them to, to, to be. And guys, if you're visiting again, I don't have many jokes. I got one joke about digging holes all the time, you know, uh, because Austin's my boss at work. Um, so if I say that again, it's just because I'm Johnny One Note up here. I'm not that creative. I just keep using the same joke, and you keep laughing, so I keep doing it. So oikotes, a servant or slave that worked within the house, these servants were often educated. This term is not to be paralleled with our understanding of American slavery in, in our history. It's not to be paralleled with that. Um, those slaves were treated much, much worse than, than what's here in terms of oikotes. This was very different in first century. The slaves were often managers, overseers, trained members of various professions. 
and their service in this household, in which they were often well-treated, usually led to their freedom. But there were occasions where they were treated unjustly, and Paul is writing to Christians. So think of it in terms of, hey, Christian servant, Christian who is under the thumb of the homeowner. When they are treating you, whether it's persecution for your faith or whether it's just somebody that's just had a bad day and they're just being mean for the sake of being mean, whatever form of injustice comes on you, he's saying there's a way that you need to respond. There's an ethic. There's a code of conduct for you. The same is true when he says subject yourself to every human institution because those human institutions, just a few verses before, what happens in those sometimes? Sometimes there is treatment that is unjust. Wives being subject to your husband, the same thing, just a few verses later. It's the same idea. It's like, listen, you subject yourself, and there might be injustice against you. You know, I mean, he deals with a wife who's married to an unbelieving husband, a husband that doesn't really give a rip about her Christianity, but it is speaking to a Christian woman saying, remain that you might win him with a word. And you might suffer injustice, whether it's persecution because of your faith. Maybe he's mocking you. Maybe he's slandering you because you're a foolish Christian who's drinking the Kool-Aid, right? And maybe that's happening. Maybe he's beating this woman, and Jesus is saying, look, he doesn't give us that, that detail. But what he's saying is, if you're married to this unbelieving person, he's saying, submit yourself. Submit yourself. Now, there are nuances even with that, and this is not the time nor the place to get into. Well, what, are the, what are the exceptions for divorce or, or, or if, if a wife is being beaten, what's, what's the Christian response? That's fun conversation for another time, and I think there are answers there. But that's not the attempt today because we're not going that far. So servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And because this is written to Christian, there's overlap for us. There's an expectation that we encounter this text and that we respond. We don't just chalk it up to something that's antiquated, something that's so long ago that's okay, that's not really that's not really what we're supposed to do. But I don't think we also approach it and say, well, well then this is this is black and white, line in the sand passivism to where no matter what happens, we just receive that. There are some that hold that view. I am not of that view currently. I'm a student in progress and I'm working through these things. Uh, for those of you in this room, like Austin Hammers, who hopes that the Lord may may call him to 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 you know to preaching and teaching or something, whatever the Lord's having you to do, brother, I think this is an important time for you to see. Uh, uh, Austin's a better guy to be up here in terms of humility, but I think both of our our hearts are uh, grateful that we can be here, and and we haven't arrived yet. We don't have an answer for every single thing. You know, we're working through things just like you, and we are often informed by people like you as to how to think better on an issue. Um, and for that, we are, we are eternally grateful. Any, this, this term unjust or, or uh, this unjust treatment, this is any unjust treatment, whether uh, as a form of persecution or any other. So as a part of this first point, and the first point's the longest, the, the others are very, very short, because the others, I think, are very easy to process, very easy to work through and apply. But this first one, I think it demands... And it necessitates some conversation, some exploration, and some mining of some realities and principles here. So a few necessities that I want to present to you under this idea of a Christian's response to injustice. Because that's who this is written to, Christian, who is suffering injustice. The first is this. There's a necessity 
that we need to recognize with regard to justice in this life and its function. We can't arrive at a text like this and say, well, we have no claim or no right to justice. There's no reason to pursue justice. And I would argue against that. I would say we absolutely, absolutely have a relationship to justice. And here's just a few arguments as to why. First of all, justice is not a bad thing. It's a God thing. It's a gracious thing. Why do we even have justice here in this life? Whether it be through these human institutions, whether it be laws being made, I get it. Sometimes these are seemingly arbitrary. We have police precincts, police forces that are doing what? They are trying to uphold the law, and if someone does not uphold the law, what do they do? They enforce the law, and sometimes they have to dispense, well, through their work, and then you go to the courts and the judiciary system and all this, and then you dispense justice. This is all a grace that the Lord has given in a broken world to help keep the peace. Okay, to help keep the peace. Are there some that are corrupt? Are there some that abuse these things? Absolutely. But we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, our justice system is so whack, it's so messed up, (laughs) you know, it's so flipped on its head. I mean, God, because he is just, there is a judicial system because there is a just God. God is eternal and unchangeable. He's immutable. He's always been just. I would argue that there's never been a call for justice within the triune Godhead. There's never been a cause for wrath within the triune Godhead. I mean, that is the epitome of what peace is and harmony. But then you have this world that is broken, and for God to display his justice, his mercy, his wrath, which flows from his justice, ultimately his holiness, he created this world so that these things could be on display. And so we have justice because we first have Jesus or because we first have God, the Trinity. So it's not a bad thing. Justice exists because God exists. It exists to display God's nature and ultimately God's glory. Justice is only known in this world because it is a part of who God is. The psalmist knew this well. He said, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, O God. God is for justice. God is about justice. Now, if I'm not careful, I want to give this this disclaimer as well. My interest today is not to create a bunch of social justice Warriors. That's not my bag. That's not my trajectory. That's not the trajectory of this church. But in part, it is to help us reorient our thinking towards right and proper uh, dispositions towards justice. Because I think a lot of these things are grossly misappropriated today. And I think sometimes we take up causes, we take up crusades that maybe there are worthy cause and crusade, but maybe it's misappropriated. Maybe that's due to a misunderstanding of our relationship to justice. You and I have a healthy sense and a desire for justice. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, who, you know, I, I see it in my kids all the time. You know, we had, we had a, a couple over last night that I had done premarital counseling for, and I just warned them. I said, look, we would like to play a game. You know, we, we, you know, our family, we'd, we'd like to play, we'd like to have you over. We're going to, I'll make, I'll make some food on the griddle. And I did that. And I said, we'd like to maybe play a game and, 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 and do that. So we like to play this game, Exploding Kittens. Okay. If you've never played that, it's tons of fun, but it brings out the worst in every human being, you know, and I, and I, and I, it, I see it as an opportunity for both failure and success, you know, because when my kids turn on me and they do, you know, I'm like, it's on, you know, and so I have to be very careful my kids turn on each other. I'm like, wow, I've created monsters. 
they came over, and my kids turned on them. My kids turned on them, you know, and uh, they're out, and it's so funny. Uh, Wesley turns on Sarah, you know, because they're, they're, she, like, attacked him and made him draw two cards that didn't make him draw an exploding kitten. He's mad at her now because, how dare you do this? I'm your son. So he's attacking her. How dare you do this? I'm your mother. You know, Marley's laughing at the two of them. She's hiding diffuse cards in her pants pocket. I'm not kidding. I'm like, you're a cheater, you know, and, and, and you know, it's, 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 it's pandemonium. You know, it's, it's absolute pandemonium. But what I see is one of them plays a card or one of them, you know, attacks the other in gameplay and they're so upset when someone finally attacks them back, it's like justice. Justice was served. Marley, because she's a little cheater, uh, she won the game, but then we said, uh, no, we were revoking your victory because you cheated to win, you know, which I was, all right, confession, all right. I was a little impressed at, at her cunning ability to, 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 to win the game, but it was in a bad way. I was like, you know, it's like, I'm not boasting in her pravity, but it's like, that's, that's what it does. I was like, that was creative, but shame on you, you know, go to your room, you're grounded. I don't know. So, but she lost because she cheated. And so by default, Calvin won, which he always wins somehow. He knows nothing about the game, but he always manages to win. And there, it was like, justice, you know, it's like, you lost. Wesley was very happy about that because he, he, he cannot stand injustice. So she lost. He said, yes, you're a cheater. You deserve to lose, and that's justice. It's in us. It's in us. I mean, let's be honest. How many of us see something that's unjust that takes place, or we see someone that's mistreated, someone that's marginalized or whatever, and then the one who does that, the one who commits the injustice or the, the, injustice or the unjust act, justice comes on them, and there's a sense of satisfaction. Now, granted, that can be taken wrong, and you could be someone that has more of a spirit of rebellion and someone who looks for people to come crashing down, you know, rather than for people to succeed. You look for failure. You relish in that, and that's a dangerous way to go, which we'll talk about towards the end. But it's right and natural in us to have this sense and desire for justice because God is just, and he shared that attribute with you and with me. That's why you have creativity because God has shared that attribute with you. That's why uh, you can be merciful and loving to others because God has shared those attributes that belong to him with you. And justice is the same way. He has shared those attributes with you. So it's good. It's a good thing. Jesus met the demands of God's justice through his atonement. You and I are counted as those who are of Christ's church, his bride, because justice was served. You understand that? People spend eternity in hell. Why? Because justice has to be paid. And when you think of justice, you cannot help but think about the atonement. Justice has to be paid. Either you atone for that, and it takes an eternity to do that, or Christ atoned for that on the cross. Justice plays a vital role in the way God governs this world. God set human institutions in place to dispense justice when and where it's needed. So I don't want us to arrive at this text and see servants be subject to your masters with all respect, both to the just and the unjust, and walk away saying, well, there's no room for justice ever because we just have to take the injustice. God has created justice to deal with injustice. 
But there's a way in which we go about these things. There's a way in which we can do this and be consistent with what it said previously in the text that by doing good, you will silence the ignorance of foolish men. The question is, is doing good doing nothing? Or can doing good be consistent with doing that which is just? In an act of love for God's justice, but also in an act of love for one another. So I think there's a necessity when we look at the function and the role of justice. But there's also the necessity of appropriate Christian conduct as it pertains to us as image bearers of Christ. And I draw a line of distinction, by the way, between an image bearer of God and an image bearer of Christ. Everyone's an image bearer of God. We're all image bearers of God. That's why we love all people. That's why we love all men. Uh, uh, Black, white, doesn't matter. Because you're image bearers. From the very beginning, the, the, the framework for love and interpersonal relationships was made from eternity past through the Trinity, right? And so we have love and affection for all image bearers. But for those who are image bearers of Jesus, those are the ones who are, reju- uh, uh, those are, the ones who are um, in Christ, So the necessity of appropriate Christian conduct as it pertains to an image bearer of Jesus. So why is Christianity's relationship to justice? Or what is Christianity's relationship to justice? We haven't moved past this single verse yet. What should the Christian response be to being treated unjustly? This text is often used to promote pacifism, but I don't think building an entire framework for this kind of ethic or code of conduct is wise based on one verse. Because what if you did that for a whole host of other verses in the Bible, right? What if you just took it at face value rather than trying to use proper hermeneutics and understand this verse in light of other verses? And even backing up further than that and understanding this verse in light of the entire canon of the Bible. I mean, you're looking at the nature of God, the purpose of God from eternity past, the nature of God as he existed uh, before all things eternally and how that nature, him being just, plays into all these things as we just explored a moment ago. I think doing good can still apply if one seeks justice through proper God-ordained systems versus responding with evil or with vengeance. I mean, this is instructed to us. The, the, another, another man in the Bible who wrote about justice issues, who wrote about subjection issues, authority issues, is the Apostle Paul. And so Paul writes in the book of Romans, he says these words, and keep in mind, this is very interesting, Romans 12 precedes Romans 13, there you go, but here's the issue Man came around thousands of years later and started putting chapters and verses. And sometimes when a chapter ends in the Bible, we we disconnect intellectually. We say, okay, well, that's all that has to say about this. Now let's move here and see what's new. Sometimes you read straight through that big black font in my Bible, the big 13 or the big 12. You move right on through and you take what's following in the same context. And such is true with the end of Romans 12 and the beginning of Romans 13. Now, I'm not going to read Romans 13, but that's where he talks about subjecting yourself to authorities in human institutions, just like Peter says here in 1 Peter. Romans 12, 14 through 21, listen to this. We're talking about the necessity of proper Christian ethic, proper Christian conduct. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. 
Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will pay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I think there's something key to this text, and that is we're not repaying evil with evil, and we're not avenging ourselves. Those are actions that are not consistent with doing good so that you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. I think doing good can encompass a lot of things with regards to Christian conduct. I don't think doing good necessarily means doing nothing. I don't think it's an end-all argument for Christian passivism. This does not say do not seek justice. I believe it's saying do not sin in your response to injustice. Because he specifically mentions the action of repaying evil for evil. And avenging others yourself taking the matters into your own hands and becoming a vigilante becoming a metaphorical batman to a metaphorical gotham this text actually when you read on down to 13 this text actually promises justice as god dispenses it through the very human institutions that he set in place that's why we subject ourselves to these human institutions and a part of that is trusting in those institutions, yes, some corrupt, yes, governed by corrupt people because we're sinners. Trusting and hoping that justice will be brought about as God has ordained it to be. Here's some examples of proper responses to injustice, persecution or otherwise. And I'm not saying this is every time 100% because I think the pendulum shifts or swings both ways. If someone is relentlessly harassing you for being a follower of Jesus, just in your face all the time, this is a verbal persecution, right? Or just harassing you for whatever has nothing to do with Jesus. They just don't like you because they hate themselves. And so everyone else is a, is a, is a target for them. We call those bullies, right? And it happens at this grand scale. Well, sometimes we do what? We get restraining orders. That's justice, it's justice. What about in the sense of persecution? Is it wrong? Is it wrong for you to, to take harassment? Someone's calling and, and making death threats because you're a follower of Jesus. They're, they're, they're contacting anybody and everybody they can to discredit you. Is it wrong in those cases to maybe get a restraining order and let the judiciary or, judici- or, or, or those authorities, let them deal with it as God has put things in place to govern such issues of injustice? What about someone assaults you? Is it okay to call the authorities or do you just have to continue to take the beating? Kevin has often said to me at work, he says, beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> but this idea, right, of, of, of receiving a beating, do you just take that? Do you just take that? Example three, someone breaks into your home and tries to harm you and use lethal force even. Or they, they try to harm you and they're, they're volatile towards you or whatever. I mean... Can you defend yourself? They're in your home. Can you do that? There are many that would say, absolutely not. Persecution or not, you can't do it. Because that's not what a Christian does. A Christian is to seek peace with all men if possible, Romans. 
I'll tell you this, it's not okay, even though the book of Exodus, chapter 22, verses 3 through 4, I believe, Jesus, and this is a part of his character, he spells out what self-defense looks like in home, and he sanctions it and says, hey, here's what you would do in this case, and you'll be okay. I don't look at it so much as a, could you do it then versus now, I look at it more of the character of God, inconsistent with his justice. If you harass back, problem, no good. If you go to pick a fight with someone who assaulted you earlier, that's vigilantism. They mess with you, and now you've got this vengeful heart, vengeful spirit, so you're going to go back and attack them and finish what they started. That is not okay and not proper Christian conduct. Leave room for the vengeance of the Lord, the, the, the Bible says. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. What about going into someone's home who robbed you later, and you go and rob some stuff of theirs? Nope. <laughs> There is something that we like to call the golden rule that says treat others as you would have them treat you. We, treat, we, we teach our kids this because kids have a sense of justice that God has ingrained in them. So if, so if Marley takes something of Wesley's, Wesley's like, I'll show you. He takes something of hers because that's justice. It's a misappropriation of justice. You see what sin has done? You see what the fall has done to something that is good? It says, well, I'm going to misappropriate it. I'm going to take advantage of it. But I think that's why these things are necessary. It's necessary to understand how, we, uh, how there's an appropriate Christian conduct as it pertains to us as image bearers of Jesus because we just can't respond any way our emotions dictate. There's no place for vengeance. There's no place for vigilantism. Thirdly, I think there's a necessity in harmonizing where pursuing justice fits into the life of an image bearer of Christ. When we don't harmonize these things, I think here's the problems that we fall into. I think there's three categories that are problematic if we don't try to harmonize, you know, when we endure and what enduring looks like, when we respond, when we seek justice. And again, I'm a student. These things are not easy for me. I've wrestled through this, and quite frankly, I told myself, you know what, I wish I just didn't have to preach this week because I'm not ready. But here it is, Sunday, so I'm giving you all that I've wrestled through, okay? So this is great for discussion for missional community. And then you can tell me (laughs) what to think (laughs) because this is not easy for me. Here's one of the three categories I think are very dangerous. First, Christian passivism. When Christians feel like any defense is wrong, there are texts that are commonly used to promote a Christian passivism. One, Peter drawing the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane with the servant to the high priest. Peter pulls out that sword and he hacks off the ear of the guy and Jesus rebukes him. He says, put that sword away. He said, those who appeal by the sword will die by the sword. So some run to that and say, see, you should never draw the sword. The disciples never draw the sword after that moment because it's wrong. Yet Jesus tells them, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy a sword. And then some would say, well, that's metaphorical. How do you know that? Others would say, no, it's literal. Because of the times that they were in and what they would endure, he told them to buy a literal sword. <laughs> I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm at the hands of these men that I read that, 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 that disagree with one another sometimes. I'm, what do I do with that? Holy Spirit, show me something. But I'm not confident enough right now to say, hey, thus says the Holy Spirit when it might be a little gray. At least my understanding, not the Holy Spirit himself. They want to go to verses like the Sermon on the Mount, you know, where it says in rapid succession, it says, listen, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. They say, look, if someone says, give your tunic, give them your cloak as well. If someone says, go a mile, then you go too. And they take that and say, see, Christian passivism, you know, you're, 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 you're always to give, always, and I would agree, 
to be charitable and to be compassionate and to be loving. And I would absolutely agree that those shouldn't be marks of the Christian. That's the example of Jesus, by the way, to put the car before the horse. However, if I said to you, Roseanne, because she's looking at me, I said, Roseanne, you know, I know that this drug addict came to you on the street and said, hey, I need $10. I'm going to go buy some dope. And Roseanne said, well, they asked, so I'll give it to them. Not only that, I'll give you 20 bucks. You know, hey, Roseanne, I need your coat because uh, I'm going to sell it to buy drugs. Okay, well, I'll give you my tunic as well. No, we'd say that's not wise at all, but it's there in the scripture. It's black and white. It doesn't give caveats. It doesn't give an explanation or some kind of addendum or anything that says, well, in this case, do this. It just says, hey, if someone says go a mile, go two. I don't think that we're focusing or we should be focusing on the letter of the law there, but the intent of the law. And the intent is, hey, this is Christianity 101. There is a certain characteristic that should be marked in the life of a believer or characteristics. Charity. Love compassion. This should be named among you, not slander, not envy, not these things. This should be named among you. So I think it's speaking to the, charity, to the character, sorry, and the quality of a human being in Christ more so than just drawing a line in the sand and say, if someone punches you, just get ready to give them the other side until they're done with you. No. It's saying, you know what? If someone punches you, here's what it's getting at. You're not someone that should be quarrelsome or someone who's looking for a fight or someone who's looking to stop it. Men in the room, this is difficult for us because I don't know about you, but my natural disposition, if someone wrongs me, is like, I'll take it to the next level. You know, I was a guy that when I was younger got into a lot of fights. You know, if someone picked on me or made fun of me, you know, it was like, all right, well, we're going to throw hands and we'll see what happens, you know. The only time I think I lost a fight is the one that my mom entered into when I was fighting another guy, and she gave me the business. And so, but I only fought fights that I thought I could win, so there's that. So, you know, uh, don't think I'm this great <laughs> fighter. <laughs> um, so I think this is more about the character of a person. I think there's an intent of the letter. Rather than taking it at the law of the letter, we have to be careful with that because these are things that we do in Scripture a lot. I think there's an intention here behind subjection. There's an intention here behind what it is to subject ourselves and to be respectful and to do good things to silence the ignorance of foolish men. I think this address, the address here is for someone who is compassionate, charitable, and not vengeful or retaliatory. Self-control. There's a problem with Christian passivism. And I think the, one of the problems is this. With, with the problem with absolute, unmitigated passivism is it could easily lead to perpetuating a false understanding of God's justice. I think it can bring into question the justice of God. If we, if we, if we promote this idea that justice is bad and has no place in the Christian life, then what does it say about a justice that not only is God but is from God? Another problem with absolute passivism, unmitigated passivism, is that it could prohibit you from loving others properly, looking out for one another. I do think the Good Samaritan is an example. I mean, I know that they, they arrived to this guy after he was already hurt, but there was, a, there, was a, there was a love and a concern and a compassion and a charity for this person. 
I think if I'm seeing someone that's being harmed, the, op the, the, the question is, d does the pendulum swing so that I just have to watch Matt Brock get, get, his, get his face beat in at the, at the abortion mill if someone's that mad at him one day? Do I just sit there and say, hey, man, you know, <laughs> by doing good, you will silence arrogance of foolish men, you know? Maybe I'm the foolish man in that scenario because I'm not looking after the best interests of my brother. You know, that's a difficult one for me. That's where my brain goes. I might be wrong in that, but I think that I have a responsibility to look after him. The beauty of it is, is I can step in and help Matt without being vengeful. I can step in and help Matt without repaying evil for evil. You know, I can do it with the right spirit, the spirit of obedience, the spirit of wanting to look out for my brother rather than looking to destroy someone else for what they've done to my friend. It gets nuanced, and I don't think it's an easy conversation or, or a simple conversation. What about defending the defenseless? Protecting the unborn who are oppressed and experience injustice of the highest degree. If it's a black and white Christian passivism, then why are you men spending your time on the hill every Sunday or every Saturday? We don't have a right to justice. So why do we fight for the unborn? I think that's a problem you run into if you want to be consistent. Rescuing countless people. What about the endeavor or the crusade of rescuing countless from the sex trafficking industry? That's highly lucrative. There's a right to justice. And I get it. Maybe there are some crusades and you get into discussions of, is this the church's purpose? Is it not? And it is a fine line to walk. But it's there nonetheless. Second category, Christian vigilantism. We become the judge and the executioner. It's not our role in this life to bring judgment on a lost world. The Bible does talk about Christians ruling and reigning. Specifically in the context of the church. Absolutely we judge one another in the right way. In the right way. That form of judgment is holding other brothers and sisters to a standard, a gospel standard and saying, you're not consistent with what you claim. So we have a different disposition as far as being judges from the lost world to the redeemed world. But it's always a dangerous thing to assume the role of God as mere men. We take vengeance into our own hands instead of leaving it to the Lord. In other words, we think that others will suffer worse at our hands than they would in the hands of an angry God. Third category is Christian the Christian spirit of rebellion. Here, again, I think Christian pa passivism, or, or these are dangerous categories here. So I want to explain this, and then we can wrap up with a few, uh, with a few points, uh, mining out the rest of the text. I told you this is, the, the last two are very quick, but this one I wanted to, to mine out a little bit. Be careful of a spirit of, rebell a, a, a spirit of rebellion. I talked about this some with my MC, just testing the waters. Does this make sense? Because this is how I'm thinking. Where I might say, in my conviction, right now, as I understand it as a student of the Bible, that there are times when we can pursue justice, and that's fine. There is pursuing justice while you're on a trajectory of obedience to Christ versus a pursuit of justice because you're someone that's quarrelsome, someone that's combative, and someone that just looks for every opportunity, and allow me this, to metaphorically give the government the middle finger. There's two types of people. There's those looking to be martyrs, those wanting to make a name for themselves, and they do it in the name of God. 
I'm waiting for the government to say, I can't do this, and I will show them that I can. Be careful. Be careful of that. There's a difference in that person and someone who says, my, my focus is pursuing Jesus. I'm going to be obedient to Christ. And along the way, that's my trajectory. There's nothing wrong with that. There's no motives in question there. I want to be obedient to Christ. But guess what happens? Along the way, the human institutions, they want to say, ah, you can't do this. Well, I'm already on this trajectory, so guess what happens? I'm in rebellion against the government who is in rebellion against God. But I'm in rebellion, but that's not the spirit. My spirit is obedience to Jesus. But because of that decision that the government has made, it is... It has naturally put me in a position, maybe not a heart position, but a physical position of disobedience to them. And that's what happens when they start to act contrary to the revealed will of God. And so there is a difference. There's a difference in a spirit of rebellion versus just the action of rebellion. I had a, a pastor, uh, my, a pastor told me years and years ago, I won't tell the story for many reasons, but um, I had never, to my knowledge, been guilty of any kind of insubordination. I have a healthy understanding of what leadership is and subjection to those leader, that leadership. I've never had a problem in the classroom uh, with, 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 with the, the, the authority figures that were my teachers. I've never had those issues. I, I talked a lot, okay? I did. But that was back in the day where they'd take you out and they spank you. And I got passed around and spanked by everybody, and that was okay. So that was disrespectful. I get it. But I, I didn't have this bent in me that said, I hate all authority. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick it to them. But I was serving at a local church. Uh, I've only served in one, ch- well, I've been an intern, but I haven't served in a lot of churches. I, don't, I didn't hop around a lot, which I think is good. Um, and, and there was an interim pastor that we had who acted against a very, very clear command of Scripture with regards to church discipline towards a couple that were in sin. And I was told, let them go so they don't have to be our problem to deal with. So I pushed back, and I got in trouble for it. I wasn't fired or anything like that. I was chewed out. I was told that I was insubordinate. I was told that I was going to burn the church to the ground for that moment, for that moment. When I challenged one man just to respond rightly to a very clear text, didn't like that. So I called a former pastor. I said, you know what he said, that I'm insubordinate. He said, well, you are. I said, what? <laughs> I'm going to fight you. You know, I'm, I'm all mad. I'm, I'm, he goes, no, 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 hear me. He said, hear me. Your heart wasn't insubordinate. Your actions were. And sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes it's necessary to be in rebellion. Just like we talked about last week, that there are times when we don't subject ourselves to the governing authorities because those governing authorities are doing something that would cause you to not subject yourself to Jesus. And that's when we say no. That's when we fight. That's when we rebel. But that rebellion comes involuntarily and involuntarily as a natural response to obedience to Jesus. The Christian should be ready for a fight more so than the Christian is looking for one. It's just not a proper response to injustice. Again, Paul wrote, if possible, live at peace with all men. That's what we're trying for. That's what we're aiming for, to live at peace. The obedient spirit sometimes end up in conflict because the world presses against that trajectory of obedience, causing you to be postured in a rebellious state against the world. And that's okay. But a rebellious spirit that's looking for a fight, 
that's wanting to be caught up in that, that's wanting to make a name for themselves, that does not depict the person and the character of Jesus Christ. Was he caught up in some stuff? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was his focus? Obedience to his Father's will, which naturally put him at odds with the authorities around him. So there are these blessings, or there are, uh, um, there's, a, there's a right and Christian response to injustice. There's so much more to talk about with that, but let me, let me bring it to a close by saying this, okay? A, Christian bless, a Christian's blessing in suffering, the text says this, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It says, for what credit is it when you suffer and are you're beaten for it, you endure. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For you've called to be like Christ in your suffering. Quickly, suffering injustice is a good thing. It's a gracious thing. That's what the scripture says. I'm going to move to this, this, this idea of just giving you straight what the text says suffering injustice is a gracious thing when mindful of god it says this is having a conscience towards god and what you do in living moving and have your being whether it's whatever you're doing that you're doing it with a mind to god you're doing it with a mind towards christ with his principles his rules his regulations we do our duty in subjection with minds towards god not with a regard to men but with a regard to God, because heavenly regard yields heavenly reward. Worldly regard yields worldly reward. Women, it goes here. Women, subject yourself to your husbands, right? You subject yourself to with regard to Jesus. For this context, with a woman who is subjecting herself to a lost man, you know, if she only has regard for who he is and for not Jesus, who who. who not for who Jesus is, then the reward is different. You don't want uh, uh, the earthly reward. If you could call that that, you want the heavenly reward. If our response to injustice is with regard to man rather than God, then we miss the mark. But we have to be have the mind uh, that, that is set or the conscience that is set towards God. This is a gracious thing. basically means that it is a thing for which you will be blessed. There is blessing, it says this later, that comes with subjecting yourself. But there's suffering injustice as a gracious thing, but by contrast, there's suffering self-inflicted wounds, which is a foolish thing. This is what he says. And I'm not going to talk about that a lot. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. You know, self-inflicted wounds are something you shouldn't have to suffer in this spiritual sense okay there are a lot of people who claim persecution because they've done something let me just throw an example and let me say i'm in no way promoting this <laughs> as an ideal or methodology you know that we 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 have taken a stance against abortion if one of you said you know what this is your pastor saying this is not okay just in case someone likes to uh, uh <laughs> you know manipulate the truth here uh that's not that's listening online or something I want to be clear in saying it's not okay for you to see that abortion is wrong, and therefore what you're going to do is burn down the abortion clinic. This is a bad thing. This is not good. You go to jail, and then you say, persecution. You see, I'm suffering for righteousness' sakes. No, you're not. You're suffering for stupidity's sakes because you broke a very clear law. That's not the way you go about these things. You did not pursue the God-ordained means of, of justice to deal with these things. And I know justice is not necessarily dealing with the issue right now, but nonetheless, that's not the way to go about it. That would be a good example of suffering a self-inflicted wound, and the Lord calls that foolishness. 
It doesn't make sense. It's dumb. You know, Sarah and I have this argument all the time. She said, I don't like the word stupid. I said, what's in the Bible seven times? No, it's not. Yes, it is. So one night, I very husbandly walked her through every text. And it took about one and a half texts. Like, okay, I get it. I get it. You know, I'm like, no, no, we're going to look at this because we study the Bible together, right? We're going to look at every single one. So, you know, that wasn't smart of me. I get it. It was arrogant. But, you know, I'm an idiot sometimes. So, you know, but now she knows. Now she knows. So, I use that word in its right context for those of you that may not like that. It is stupid to suffer self-inflicted wounds. But it is a gracious thing when we suffer for Jesus' sake. And the final thing, final thought. Let me just mention a Christian's example in Christ. A Christian's example in Christ. Peter ends with that. He says, for you have this example. I'm leaving you this example. Jesus Christ also suffered for you so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled. He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. To himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live through righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So Christ is our example. And it's fitting that we would finish with that, okay? With all the confusion... With all the, uh, you know, you know, uh, the, which, which, where, where does the pendulum need to land? With all of these things happen, just understand this. Where we should not be confused is following Christ's example. And just read that text to, 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 to make those applications there. Um, Christ's example was looking forward or looking towards the Father and obedience to Him. Christ's example was not looking for a fight, not looking to be combative or quarrelsome. That, those things found him. He didn't have to go looking for it. There's a difference in looking for a fight and looking towards Christ. Christ's example was leaving room for God's justice and his vengeance. It says when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And it just might be that there are scenarios where leaving room for justice might be God's ordained institutions to bring about that justice. I don't think it's relegated to or, or specific or specific to God has to supernaturally come down and flood the world with water. You know, but justice can be administered through other means rather than a supernatural zapping with lightning. This is Christ's example, a life marked by love, compassion, integrity, and peace. So here's the conclusion. At the end of all things, there's a clear, unmistakable principle here, and that is this, that it's never wrong to follow Christ's example. Some of these issues are clear, whereas others are more difficult to discern. Sometimes we fight, sometimes we flee. Paul used his Roman citizenship to get out of a beating. He had a right. He appealed to the judiciary system, and he got out of a beating. Is Paul wrong for that? Is that a blemish in Paul's history because he chose not to be passive, but he appealed to an institution that God had put in place in order for justice. In Acts chapter 9, directly after Paul's conversion, he proclaimed Jesus and he was, uh, he was incarcerated. And guess who come to help him, lower him out of a building by a basket to escape? The disciples. Was Paul wrong for that or should he have just sucked it up and take it, taken it like a man? On the other hand, there are times to be led silently before the judge and executioner exemplified in Jesus as he stands before Pilate as a lamb silent before its shears, exemplified in many of the martyrs who were arrested and taken away. And there's examples in conversations. 
about those things that I think need to be had, and hopefully they'll be had in missional community. And sometimes these issues boil down to matters of conscience, although I say that very carefully. I do believe there are matters of conscience. Something's not revealed in God's word, but something might be okay for Travis and not okay for me. Again, this is not the revealed thing. It's not okay for Travis to commit adultery, but me not to, because it doesn't hurt my conscience. That's, that's bananas, all right? That's wrong and, and stupid. I'll, I'll use that word again. But there are things that are matters of conscience, you have to wrestle through those things. But be very careful with that because your conscience doesn't mean you're right. doesn't mean you're right. Because sometimes we're led by emotion. And we think that the Holy Spirit has spoken to us. All right, that's all I'm going to cover for today. I'm going I'm to pray. And then Austin's going to come up here. And uh, after I pray, the, 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 our deacons are going to pass you out um, a piece of paper so that we can enter into our uh, brief budget. We just want to give you this so you can have something tangible to look at to know. Uh, there's not discussion or anything like that. It won't be long. So bear with us for just a moment after I pray. And you'll have that. You'll take that. And, uh, and I think that will be beneficial for you. So let's pray. Father, please help us understand these truths. Lord, you know, my disclaimer at the beginning, Lord, was not an attempt to have my cake and eat it too. Lord, it was not an attempt to, you know, get away with any kind of intellectual laziness. Lord, I have labored this week in understanding these things. I have read and I have read and I have read and I have thought and thought. I've had conversations. I've watched videos. Lord, you know my efforts. Lord, but for some reason, you know, you have chosen not to show me anything definitive uh, or you show, you've only shown me so much, I feel. And, and I feel good about that because there are so many who have debate over this very issue. But help us to keep the main thing the main thing, Lord. Help us to be people who are compassionate, people who are loving, people who are not quarrelsome, people who are seeking peace, if possible, with all men. We know sometimes that peace is not possible. That's why it's worded that way. In those moments, help us to know how to rightly act as far as our relationship to justice is concerned. In Jesus' name, amen.